Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now in our second season, and we're more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues, gut health, cancers, lung, and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show in our month-long segment on Earth Day 2021, Restoring Our Earth. And today we're going to talk about restoration and mitigation, ecosystems, forests, and our well-being. Globally, forests cover nearly one-third of the land area, and they contain over 80% of land-based or land-dwelling variety of living beings on our planet. Both the extent and the quality of our forest habitat continues to decrease, and the associated loss of biological diversity jeopardizes our forest ecosystem and how it functions, as well as the ability of forests to provide their life-giving ecosystem services to us. Ecosystem services are the many and the varied benefits to human beings that are provided by the natural environment, such as agro-ecosystems, that's the ecosystem surrounding agriculture, forest ecosystems, grasslands ecosystems, and aquatic ecosystems. In light of the increasing population pressure, it is of major importance not only to conserve, but also to restore forest ecosystems and others, as is the whole theme of this year's Earth Day. Scientists say the world's natural forest and other critical ecosystems like grasslands are hanging on by thread. They are of critical importance to the world's climate, our food supply, species habitat, and indigenous peoples. In places like Indonesia, Central Africa, and the Amazon, forests are being cleared to make room for livestock, replaced by monocrop plantations like soy and palm oil. They're being exploited for timber, and they're just withering away from the impacts of climate change. About half of the world's forests have already disappeared, and only 20% of what remains intact is viable. As it stands, the world loses more than 23 million acres of forest area every year. And so the window of opportunity to reverse deforestation and protect the world's remaining intact forest is shrinking, and it's shrinking fast. Not only does this have huge consequences for the climate, and for wildlife, but it's also a major human rights concern as an estimated 1 billion plus people worldwide depend on forests for their livelihood. This is a lot. So here today to help us explore this some more is Will Anderson. 
And Will is with the World Resources Institute. Will is the communications lead for the World Resources Institute's Forest Programs Global Restoration Initiative. There, he manages outreach for their work on AFR 100, their work on the Land Accelerator, the Initiative 20 by 20, their Terra Match, and their monitoring techniques. Will develops strategies and plans, and he builds partnerships and manages the team's external communication. The World Resources Institute develops research-based solutions that create real change on the ground. And they do this by relying on a three-step approach that I love. That is, count it, change it, and then scale it. Now, across 50 countries, the World Resources Institute is working to accelerate the global movement to restore degraded forests, farms, and pasture. And they do this by developing state-of-the-art independent monitoring techniques, channeling finance to local organizations, and connecting governments, technical experts, communities, and relevant investors. And previously, Will worked as a journalist and editor in Baltimore, and he earned a bachelor's degree in sociology and international studies from Johns Hopkins. Welcome, Will. We're so glad you could make it to us in between COVID stop holdovers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bernice. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Indeed. Now, Will, before we get into a lot of the detail of what you all at World Resources Institute are doing, will you explain to our audience about ecosystems in general? Tell our listeners why they are important and then describe what is a forest ecosystem and what it consists of so that they can really understand it. Thanks, Bernice. So ecosystems are kind of the bedrock of everything that we rely on in the world. They provide us water, they provide our food, they provide clean air and clean soil for us, for farmers. They make sure that we have kind of the natural resources that all of us people all around the world rely on. And there's a ton of different kinds of ecosystems. There are forests. I think we're all familiar with those. There are farm ecosystems. Um, I think we're all familiar with those. But there's also a wide diversity of ecosystems from tundras, which are kind of like areas with a lot of ice and grass. Um, there's grasslands, um, there's mountain ecosystems, and each of them kind of have their own special characteristics that are important. Um, I think for what we do at where I work is we focus mostly on ecosystems on the land, but there are also tons of ecosystems in the water. There are oceans, there are coastal ecosystems like mangroves. Um, there's really, it's incredible the diversity um, of what kinds of ecosystems there are out there. Um, forest ecosystems, I think personally, are especially important, and that's for a bunch of reasons. Um, the first is that forests provide really important um, tools like timber that we need for construction and for fencing and for building. Um, it also provides kind of homes for birds and animals and other kinds of plants that are really important to keep the other kind of ecosystem services that you mentioned earlier working. If we don't have forests and the people and the you know organisms that live there, we can't have farms that function. Um, forests are also really important because they also help provide key services like clean water for all of our cities and our houses. I mean, they also make sure that we have clean air for us to breathe. And so I like to think of forests as nature's toolbox. I mean, the reason I like to think of that is that they have a ton of different services that they provide, clean water, clean air. The other really important thing that they do is that they store carbon dioxide, which is what's heating up our planet's atmosphere and making climate change worse. 
So the more forests that we have and the healthier that they have, the better homes that they provide for plants and animals, the better services that they provide for you and me and everyone else, um, and the more carbon that they can sequester fighting climate change. So they're a really important tool, and not just the trees, but the other kinds of organisms that are part of forest ecosystems are equally important. You mentioned, and I want to make sure everybody understands when you say the forest sequester carbon. That is, put in other words, the forest take in the carbon from the air. They take it out of the air and I guess take it into themselves. And that is thus cleaning the air and keeping the harmful carbon from humans. That's exactly right. That's a big deal. (laughs) It is a big deal. And just think about the more trees that we have, the more that we can protect, and then the more that we can restore in the right ways, the more carbon we can store in those trees and in the soil around those trees and in the root systems, and then the healthier of a planet that we have in the long run, and the more we can fight against climate change. Thank you for that explanation to us, Will. There are a number of different types of forest ecosystems. Can you tell us about these and how each of these intersects perhaps with our daily lives and why we should care about those? Sure. And I can go through a few of them. I'd say that there are dozens of types of forests. The really important ones I think you could say are maybe in four categories. The first kind of really important forests that I would say are tropical forests. And the reason why they're important is because there are carbon-sucking machines. Those are in places like the Amazon rainforest you might have heard of, or in the Congo Basin or in Indonesia. And they have a ton of animal and plant life in there. They also have a ton of foliage and leaves and roots, and they're really important for that reason. They also supply us with some of like the fancy fruits and vegetables you might get in your grocery store. The second important forest ecosystem, I would say, are temperate forests. Those are forests that if you might have been to the east coast of the U.S. or in the west somewhere like Colorado or even in places in Texas, you might see kind of trees, think oaks and maples and all that kind of stuff. They're important because they're the ones who are the forests outside of us. People have recreation in those forests. They live near them. They provide kind of homes for plants and animals. They also provide timber and other services for us. So that's kind of the second important forest ecosystem that you might be familiar with. And the third one, which is kind of like a fun or bonus one, I would say, are boreal forests. Those are the forests that are way up in Canada and in Alaska, basically a lot of pine trees, that kind of stuff. Um, And they are vast tracts of those across Russia, Canada, and the U.S. Again, they provide, um, you know, home for plants and animals. They sequester a lot of carbon. um, And they also make sure that the ice that's in there kind of stays in the area that it is. Okay, well, let's go ahead and go to break right now, Will, and we'll come back on the other side and talk much more about this. We have been with Will Anderson of the World Resources Institute, and he's really been giving us some valuable information as to why we should really care about forests and what's happening to them, even though they may be miles and hundreds of miles away from us. Thank you, Will. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX TV streaming service. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, Sunflower Shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available online for download free at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951. 
the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, and looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on Earth Day 2021, Restoring Our Earth. And today's show is on restoration and mitigation, ecosystems, forest, and our well-being. And we are back with Will Anderson of the World Resources Institute. And before break, Will was just telling us about the various types of forest and letting us know that the tropical forest are our real workhorses in terms of the significant amount of carbon dioxide that they suck out of the air or, in his terms, sequester, so that we do not have to feel the harmful effects. And so we really appreciate that Will is making us much smarter. Now, Will, though, we want to turn to you telling us about some of the very impressive work that you all at the World Resources Institute are doing on your global restoration initiative. So tell us more about that and how it affects people directly and indirectly, really, in our everyday lives. So at the Global Restoration Initiative at WRI, um, we actually aren't the stars of the show. It's the people that we help in geographies all around the world, from Africa to Latin America throughout Asia and in the United States, we help them restore their landscapes by growing trees the right way, revitalizing grasslands, planting mangroves, doing all that kind of stuff. And we do that in kind of three ways. We help them kind of get the best knowledge and insights from the research world and to apply that to their work. We also help them get access to finance to really take their projects and take them to the next level, restore more land, grow more trees. And we also connect them with people from academia, from like in universities, um, in the government, and other investors to make sure that they have the resources that they need to take their work to the next level. Indeed, that's very, very impressive. One of the things that comes to mind is you said you connect them to the finance needed and to investors. How does that work and what kinds of people or what kinds of institutions invest in reforestation in Africa or invest in reforestation in the Amazon? I'd say that there are two main types of organizations that are currently investing a lot in forest restoration. The first of those, corporations. So, you know, those are the big companies around the world. Think of people like MasterCard and Salesforce that have made these huge commitments to grow millions and millions and millions of trees but they often don't know how to do it the right way because they're not the experts. They don't have connections with people on the ground. Um, and so WRI will step in and connect them through initiatives we have, like a platform called TerraMatch, which you can think of as kind of the match.com for trees that allows them to kind of source tree growing projects led by those local people in Africa and in Latin America and Asia, basically plant those trees, make sure that they stay planted and maintained in the long run, and then monitor, making sure that they you know, continue to provide the benefits we talked about earlier. Um, and I'd say the second category of people that are really looking to invest are what you might call impact investors, people who aren't just looking for kind of 
a you know commercial um, benefit from restoring land. But of course, there is one. Actually, each one dollar invested in restoring land can lead up to thirty dollars in economic benefits for people who actually are restoring land. And so that's not chump change. Um, and not so these all. investors are looking for that kind of revenue, but they also want social and environmental impact as well. And a lot of them are, are investing in entrepreneurs, if you could believe it or not, whose companies are restoring land by growing trees or helping farmers produce more sustainably. Um, and we see that those investors are doing that in Latin America, in Asia, and in Africa. Um, we connect them with a program called the Land Accelerator. Who are some of these investors in the Land Accelerator? Um, they're actually mostly small um, impact investing firms. Um, some of them, there's one that's very large, which is called Alcelia Morova. It's actually based out of France, but they're investing in a lot of these kind of what you might call sustainable agriculture projects. They have great examples where they're mixing kind of and monetizing the money they can get from the carbon that those trees are storing in their branches and leaves, and then selling that in the market. It's something called a carbon credit. They also get benefits from, let's say, fancy chocolate. I'm sure you've been in the grocery store and you see kind mm -hmm. of like really nice chocolate. You might buy it for Valentine's Day or something. It's sustainably sourced. It has all those seals on it. They'll often make connections between local sustainable coffee producers and the international market, and they'll look at that as a source of revenue. Um, and the cool thing about those kind of initiatives is that they're called agroforestry, which is when you kind of add trees onto farming landscapes. And so if you grow some trees and they're kind of above the shade-grown coffee bushes below them, it's better for the environment because there's more trees in there. It's better for local people. It can actually fight against diseases if it's done the right way. It can increase yields, and it increases the crop price that farmers can get for their, their coffee and cocoa. So really, at the end of the day, it's a win-win-win for everyone. And it seems like it produces better-tasting coffee and better-tasting cocoa. That is a you-forgot-one-win. It's a win-win-win, <laughs> including the drinkers. I want to go back for just a minute, too, and ask you a little bit more about your Terra Match program. That sounded very interesting. How do y'all go about determining where you're going to match up the companies to? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting platform. It was only launched last year. Um, and we kind of realized we had been kind of connecting these kind of investors with projects kind of manually, making the connections over email, setting up calls. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that there's this massive demand for it. I mean, companies want to plant and grow millions and millions of trees. And we couldn't do that. We needed to automate it in some way. And so we created this space where we're kind of sourcing from our networks in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia, kind of the best-in-class tree-growing projects, people who have been doing this for a while, they know the right communities, they're working with the right people, but who might not have access to the money that they need to actually take their companies or their projects to the next level, sourcing them, then working with funders or aggregators of funders, like this great organization in the U.S. called One Tree Planted, that basically will help people kind of aggregate the money they have. You could give a dollar, Bernice, right now, and they would help you plant a tree no matter where you want it in the world. And then helping them kind of source and match with these projects in that platform. And the one thing that it also does that's built into it, which we actually just is happening right now, is there's built-in satellite monitoring. So you actually can look on from the basically like the sky, the satellites are looking down on the ground and seeing where those trees are growing over time. And you can track that at one two, five, and 10-year periods to really prove to investors that growing trees make sense and that your projects are doing well. And we found that the, when people who are running projects can show their success to investors, that means that they get more money and they can scale up their work faster. And that's more money in the pockets of people in these communities throughout the world. Any other statistics, though, in terms of 
the amount of reforestation that's been done as a result of some of these matching programs. Yeah, so there's um, a lot of, I would say, anecdotal evidence and self-reported data, which is very important. It's the projects themselves saying, hey, we've grown this amount of trees. What we're doing right now at World Resources Institute and a lot of other partner organizations are creating techniques that will allow people to pick up tiny trees. One thing you might not know is that actually with a satellite, it's kind of easy to see where deforestation is happening. You know, picture like a big green expanse and then a little bit of like brown is chunked out of it. You can kind of tell where that chunk was taken out. It's really hard to show where trees are growing. And that's because saplings are really small when they're planted. And so it's hard for satellites to pick it up. Or they might be growing in areas that aren't forests. They might be growing on farms where they're more spaced out. And so we're working right now with like these really fancy techniques with satellite monitoring and artificial intelligence um, that's actually based on a model that was used to detect cancer cells um, within a slice of like cells of someone's body to show where those trees are growing over time. Really so microscopic type, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and so we're equipping these projects with that kind of you know, insight they need to prove their success. Indeed. That is interesting. Now, let me ask you this, Will. What is the importance, if there is any, of planting the right at the right places? It's the key to any kind of tree planting project. We have seen dozens of failed tree planting projects around the world. That's because they're just trying to plant as many trees as possible in the shortest amount of time. Um, what we found is that there are kind of some guiding principles that anyone who wants to plant trees and do it the right way needs to follow. That includes things like pick the right species. You know, if you try and plant something that a tree species in the Amazon next door to us, um, here in Washington, D.C., where I am, or in Dallas, it, that tree's not going to survive. Um, also, if you're not working with local communities or people in the area, they might cut down the tree that you're planting. Um, so those are some really important principles that we make sure that all of the tree planting projects and tree growing projects that we're working with kind of um, adhere to. Is there any particular type or family or group of trees that does more carbon absorption than others? I'd say it depends on the ecosystem, right? Okay. It depends on where you are. If you're in South Africa, there's some species of trees that are super good, but those trees won't sequester any carbon if they can't survive or thrive. Um, you might be familiar maybe with some of your listeners where they've been in a different part of the country and they've noticed that a tree of the same species isn't quite as tall. I know in D.C. here we have magnolia trees. They go really tall here. I'm from Philly, actually, originally, and magnolia trees, because they like warmer weather, don't grow quite as tall in Philly as they do in D.C. So they're sequestering less carbon. So it really depends. What I will say is that, you know, some species of trees don't work at all in areas. One example is a eucalyptus tree, which is kind of a, an invasive species from Australia that can be planted in other places. And that can actually can harm the ecosystem because it might actually suck up more water than it's providing or make it impossible for other species of trees and plants to live around that tree. So it's really important. Indeed. And well, we just have one more minute to go. And my questions leading you out are, how is climate change, and you can put in there the fires, <laughs> how's climate change affecting our forest, and how are our forests affecting climate change? Um, you know, forest and climate are part, part and parcel. You know, as we talked about, trees store that carbon. They also emit a lot of carbon. And the warmer the planet gets, actually, there's been some studies that have shown it's harder for trees in some ecosystems to store as much carbon as they did before. So the warmer the planet gets, the harder it is for most tree species to actually sequester or store the carbon that they're supposed to be doing. Um, and that also, as the planet heats up, you can imagine, fires get worse. And we've seen, like in Australia last year and the year before, in California, um, and also in places like Indonesia, which has had a major problem with forest fires. 
um, those getting worse and worse and worse over time. And that Indeed. has a major connection to human health as well. Which we're going to talk about in the next segment, but I hear you, is that it is circular. They work on and harm each other. Thank you so much, Will. You have been so informative. You have truly made us much smarter about the forest and deforestation and its effect and impact on our lives and well-being. We have been with Will Anderson of the World Resources Institute, and we really appreciate you being with us. We're going to go to break now, and on the other side of that break, we're going to move on and talk more so about the health and well-being impacts of all of these forests and their ecosystems that Will has been telling us about. Thank you, Will. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. This is the second part of today's episode on Earth Day 2020, Restoring Our Earth. And today we're talking about restoration and mitigation, ecosystems, forest, and our well-being. And now we're going to turn to the health perspective of all of this. The relationships between human health and well-being, biodiversity, healthy ecosystems, and climate change have in recent years received increasing attention in international discussion and policy processes. For example, a recent assessment cited by the National Institutes of Health has listed ecosystem goods and services that are crucial for human survival and without which life on Earth simply would not be possible. And forests and trees supply an abundance of these ecosystem services that help in creating healthy living environments and in restoring degraded ecosystems. In addition to tangible products, forests, for example, as our last guest talked about, they mitigate floods, drought, and the effects of noise. They purify water. They bind toxic substances. They maintain water quality as well as soil fertility. And they help in erosion control. They protect our drinking water sources. And they can assist in processing wastewater. Forests can mitigate climate change, and they have many, many health impacts. However, ecosystem services and goods that forests provide for us are most definitely being threatened by deforestation, pollution, biodiversity degradation, and, of course, climate change. Incidences of poor health have increased in urbanized societies, partly due to expanding urbanization and modern lifestyles that are related to increasing sedentary work and mental stress. Recently, the significant potential of natural and green spaces in enhancing human health has been recognized. Forced environments promote humans' mental and physical health in many, many ways and may assist also in preventing some chronic illnesses. And I read across an article as I was researching for this segment that simply mesmerized my attention. The article was called Greening Healthcare, Practicing as if the natural environment really mattered. And I'm still mesmerized by this. The natural world's role in human well-being is essential. Yet often they tell us it's forgotten. And it's an often forgotten aspect of healthcare, a particular importance of the benefits one can derive through interaction with natural environments. 
while health is an obvious goal of traditional medicine, many healthcare settings are neither nurturing nor healing. And they go on to say that reincorporating the natural world into the design of settings in which medicine is practiced is one way to complement conventional healing modalities and move our healthcare toward being more, quote, green. This is just amazingly interesting. And it seems to be a lot of this is under our control in a time when it also seems that maybe not much is. So here to help us understand this and dig into this a lot more is Dr. Susan Abikire, MD. She is with Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Abikire is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She is a senior executive with 20 years experience leading healthcare organizations. She consults as a chief medical officer and has served as system chief quality officer and past chair of quality and patient safety at Mount Auburn Hospital. And she's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and she trained at Brigham and Women's Hospital and practices internal medicine there. She received a master's degree from the Harvard School of Public Health and has taught nationally and internationally on patient safety, high reliability, and systems design. And most importantly, she enjoys being a forest therapy guide. Welcome, Susan. Oh, yes. Thank you for that lovely introduction. We're glad that you could join us. So, Susan, can you walk us through briefly and connect the dots for people as to how and why plants and forest and forest ecosystems are important to us, not just to go visit and recreate in, but how they're otherwise important to us in our health and well-being in our daily lives? Sure. First and foremost, it's really important for us all to recognize and feel how we are all a part of the planetary ecosystem that includes the forest and all of the plant life, as well as all animal life, including us. And of course, we may at times feel that our lives as people are indoor lives with technology and somewhat separated from nature other than when we visit nature. But in fact, every aspect of our lives, starting with the very air we breathe, is interwoven with the other non-human parts of our ecosystem. And this recognition that we're part of this magnificent ecosystem itself, the recognition itself, can deepen our sense of reassurance and belonging in the world. Humans and forests have always been interdependent. We humans, our species, the human species evolved in the forest. It is said that 99.9% of our history is in the forest and our DNA was developed. Our very, you know, the very core of our being was developed in our history in the forest. And we have an innate response to nature, and, and appreciating this and allowing this to blossom is really at the core of a lot of the health benefits of being in nature. As, as we know, uh, and maybe your other guests have, have detailed, the trees are the very lungs of the planet, 
And as trees, you know, make oxygen out of sunlight and tissue, and we breathe in the oxygen that the trees make, and then when we exhale and we breathe out the carbon dioxide, the trees in turn absorb the carbon dioxide that we exhale. So we are in this lovely back and forth partnership, even in our very everyday breathing with trees and also other plants. And of course, trees also act as a hedge against warming. And not only do they provide the very oxygen that we breathe, but also food and fuel and many, many medicines, as well as solace and beauty. Can you talk more about that? What types of medicines that we might all be able to recognize? Sure. There's evidence dating way back in from burial sites 60,000 years ago that humans use plants as, as medicines. And, and as many of the, your listeners know, our listeners know, the Chinese medicine um, is based on a scientific use of herbs, and that dates back 3,000 years to 3,000 years B.C. So even today, if we look at all of the medicines that people are familiar with today, that we, I'm going to call them the pharmaceutical medicines, medicines that are prescribed and made by pharmaceutical companies, about 40% of, the, of our, all of our medicines are based on or come from plants. They either come from plants or plant extracts. And some of them that are synthesized are synthesized to mimic um, plants in a more concentrated form. Uh, so some common examples, so, you know, people don't really think of caffeine as a medicine, but maybe I do. I mean, I do too. Can... I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, caffeine is a, is a plant, and, and it's certainly part of our everyday lives. Aspirin is a medicine that originally came from the bark of, uh, of trees, predominantly the willow tree. And the, the ingredient of aspirin is in the bark of many trees. Aspirin is, is not only a pain reliever, but it also treats fever, as we know, and can be a little bit of an anti-inflammatory medicine and a blood thinner. And there are other blood thinners. Maybe some aren't always from trees, but there are other blood thinners that come from nature, for example, from some venom that, uh, for example, snake venom. Uh, it contains the ingredients that is now a very popular set of blood thinners. A lot of the chemotherapy agents that are used against cancer come from plants. Uh, I don't literally mean that People are going and taking the bark off the tree and, and, and taking that as the medicine, but the ingredient in, for example, tree bark and other plants was seen to have anti-cancer effects, and the, the pharmaceutical version of that is a very concentrated form of what you find in the trees. Um, Indeed. Thank you for telling us and in some cases reminding us of this, the trees, the plants, the forest, and the medicinal benefits they provide, the direct medicines, or as you've mentioned, the ingredients to the medicines. We have been with Dr. Susan Abikire of the Harvard Medical Center, and we will be right back with more from her on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. 
We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX TV streaming services. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available online free for download at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens. Serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to part two of today's episode on restoration and mitigation ecosystems, forest and our well-being. And we're talking about this from the health perspective, and we are back with Dr. Susan Abikair with Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical Center. Again, thank you for being with us, Susan. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Before the break, you were telling us about the medicinal benefits in terms of health of a forest. So let me ask you now, Susan, what role, if any, do or can forests play in illnesses and disease prevention? And then the flip side of that, are there any negative effects or any contributing factors from forests to illness and disease? So the good part first and then the negative part. Well, there is, uh, there are now decades, about 40 years or four decades of research showing the benefits of forests, and green space on both physical health as well as mood and psychological health and um, attention. And there, uh, there is a practice, which I'll speak about in a moment, called forest therapy, which really uh, focuses a lot of this, these benefits for people. But there is a lot of research that shows that, uh, for example, even uh, being able to view a green space can alter people's health. Um, so some of these are uh, some of this research is very general to exposure to nature. It's not necessarily got to be an entire forest, and it's not necessarily all forest saving, uh, which I'll speak about in a moment. But for example, there there was. Uh, there are many, many studies, and over the last 40 years, some of these studies started in Japan and Korea, um, where a lot of this research really started, but now it's worldwide research and a lot of it here in the United States. For example, a recent study evaluated uh, nursing home residents and 
people who were living in nursing homes and they were doing surveys of the mood and depression symptoms of nursing homes and found that nursing home residents who had access to trees within 10 minutes of their environment, that they could walk to a tree or a set of trees or some green space, had much lower rates of depression than people who were confined to only urban environments. And they, they, there, there are numerous studies that corroborate this. Maybe is this a good time for me to just introduce a bit about the forest therapy itself? Please do. Okay. And because a lot of the research, some of it is specific to forest bathing, and, and most of it is much more general to just access to green space. And, and But forest bathing, first let me just introduce that, is a practice that was inspired by, in Japan, it, it began in Japan, and it was inspired in the United States by the Japanese practice of what was called Shinrin-yoku, which when translated means forest bathing. And forest bathing or forest therapy is an outdoor, guided, slow healing practice. It's a practice whereby people, when with a guide, can really slow down and come into partnership with nature and really also experience their own senses. It's a very slow pace, and people are invited to experience the pleasures of nature through all of their senses, listening to the birds and smelling organic matter, and really feeling their natural bodies as part of this nature. And there are also invitations in forest bathing that invite participants to really experience their partnership with the forest. So the practice, again, encourages people to be present in their body and also to be tuned into pleasure and the pleasure of being alive, really. So this practice, Shinrin-yoku, started in Japan in the 1980s, and it was really the Japanese government that noticed uh, at that time there was an increase in stress-related disease among the Japanese population. And by stress-related disease, I mean hyper, high blood pressure or heart disease or chronic inflammatory diseases. And they were noticing a spike in these kinds of diseases. And they thought that perhaps it was because at that time the workforce in Japan had moved from a rural-based economy and a rural-based workforce to cities and, and technology. And so they developed all of these forest trails throughout Japan and began uh, offering people these guided walks on forest trails and then began the research on the effect of that practice. And some of the early key studies on the health benefits come from Japan. So one of them, you know, I think partly we, maybe we know naturally that we tend to respond, our bodies tend to naturally respond to biological stimuli, you know, the feeling of sunlight on our skin or the smell of fresh air or the smells of organic matter. Well, it turns out that one of the things that the trees can do for us is to help boost our immunity. And this started with a study in Japan, again, that showed that trees release a, a volatile tree oil that we then inhale, and these 
three oils are called phytoncides, and those, uh, in the research that was done, it was shown that phytoncides that we breathe in when we're in the forest actually increase the number of, uh, there's a certain kind of immune cell that we have called a natural killer cell. So our immune system has several different kinds of cells, and the natural killer cells are ones that can kill tumors, uh, kill cells with tumors in them, or also kill cells with viruses. And it was shown in this research that people who spent time in the forest compared with people who, uh, in the study, uh, the control group were spent the same amount of time in, a, in an urban environment, had increased levels of natural killer cells after uh, a period of time in the forest. And it was narrowed down in the studies to these phytoncides that increase these cells. Uh, and that effect lasted for as much as a month um, after even one um, duration of exposure to the forest. Let me ask you this, Susan. These tree oils, can they be extracted and bottled up and spread around or what? They are to some extent, yes. You may have heard of um, aromatherapy. There are yes. extracts. There are extracts of, um, you know, of plants, of the oils of plants, many, many kinds of plants. Uh, you know, for example, if you go out and see a, a black birch tree, that if, if you learn to recognize, you know, what's edible out in nature, and so many trees and plants have something to offer. As a black birch has a wintergreen flavor, if you nibble on it. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting this, but as you know, for sure, yeah. it's the right kind of tree. Um, and that, for example, gives rise to wintergreen oil. Now, most of the oils that, we are, that you and I are talking about right now are in the form of an oil. And aromatherapy is when you, um, when you heat that up and let it evaporate into the air and you breathe it in. When you're out in nature, you're actually breathing in the volatile um, form of these phytoncides. And, and what do you mean when you say volatile form, and how does that differ from the aromatherapy that I'm inhaling? Well, the volatile form and the aromatherapy are very similar. What I mean by the volatile form is that when, you're, when trees release these oils into the atmosphere, they release them in a, in a gaseous form, in other words, a form that can be breathed in, as opposed to a little bottle of oil that you might apply on your skin. These are breathable molecules, <laughs> and the trees, the tree oils are released into the atmosphere. What I hear you saying seems to be much more powerful because many of us know, and as you mentioned, there's been study after study showing the benefits of aromatherapy. But I hear you saying that in the forest around the trees, we're getting aromatherapy on steroids because it's all around us. Exactly. And, and so it's been taken in much more significantly to have a much more significant impact. That's amazingly interesting. Does the health of the forest have anything to do from our wellness benefits? If you answer that and then give us your closing thought, and we just have one more minute before we have to go. I have a bit of a hard time answering that only because this. The health of the forest and our human health are absolutely intertwined. There is no separating them. The, the healthier the forest is, the more, nat the more naturally they're able to resist 
disease. And they can so, keep us healthy as well, is what I hear you saying. The healthier they are, the more benefit they can be toward keeping us healthy as well. Indeed. Susan, thank you so much. We will have to have you back. You've given us so much information, and I really want to dig deeper into the forest bathing. So maybe you can join us again later on in the year as we are talking about agriculture and forest more. Thank you so much for having me. Great. We've been with Dr. Susan Abikar with Brigham and Women's Hospital at the Harvard Medical Center. And we appreciate her today and we appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening in to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but it's our goal for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, like yourself. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up, one way or the other, to the change we each live through. This is Bernice Butler. Thank you so much for listening. And join us again next week for more of our Earth Day subjects on restoration and mitigation of our Earth. Thank you.